There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we are catching up on all the latest from the campaign trail, including some exciting policy joy. We look forward to the next election to follow, the Labour leadership race, which people are already talking about. And we talk about whether or not Theresa May is really campaigning in a sealed box, and whether or not that matters. Plus, you ask us, is it time to stop using the word tribal? So... The election, eh? How's that all working out? I mean, it's not a vintage campaign, right? Yeah. What I am enjoying, though, and I know this is a kind of odd thing to praise, is I am enjoying the kind of Labour crop sprayer approach to policies. It's just kind of... You know that episode of Oprah where she's like, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car? I'm kind of enjoying that. So actually, the, the, the interesting thing in terms of the polls is the recovery in Labour's vote share. Like, if the, if the polls are borne out, this will be the largest share of the vote for the big two since 1992, which itself was something like a 20-year peak. Caused by the collapse of UKIP and the pre-collapse of the Lib Dems, which is not turning into a the great revival. Yeah, the collapse of the Lib Dems, which is not unravelling as we perhaps expected it would. And then also... So the fascinating thing about the Greens in this election is... And it, it may turn out that they're like the anti-Lib Dems in that they may be putting on votes in more useful places. Mm. And in some of the mayoral results, it appeared that they might be. But the interesting thing is they keep talking about this progressive alliance. Now, obviously, causation and correlation aren't the same thing. But it is striking that the more talk of progressive alliance there is, the more the green share drops in the polls, right? Because the problem is, is what you're actually shouting if you're a green talking about a progressive alliance is you're going... We're irrelevant. We can't win. Wouldn't you be better off but voting for the Labour Party? Um, yeah, but I know, well, I think you and I are of one mind on the Progressive Alliance, right? It's like a, a way of shortcutting your way back to like, maybe there's a way back that doesn't involve winning back some Tory voters or Scotland. Yeah, and not one of the subplots of the local elections was then actually the, I mean, obviously there are problems with, um, with, uh, with the supplementary vote system, which make it more stark. But large numbers of Greens and Lib Dems second-pref the Tories. You know, people... The problem with Progressive Alliance is it's basically a way that politicos talk down to, like, ordinary voters. People do understand that elections are fought between the Tories and whoever not the Tories are, unless you're lucky enough to live in a constituency where you get to pick your favourite non-Tory party. But but people do kind of get that, right? If, if they choose to not vote for whatever the non-Tory party yeah. is, it, it's not because they've, you know, slipped and fallen in the ballot box. Yeah, I think Sarah Dytum said this on Twitter, which was something about... Basically, it's not like they 
you know, they, they, they tried to make the Labour Party and they got it slightly wrong several times, right? These are distinct parties with their own traditions and their own emphasis. And that's why people vote for them. People want the Greens, you know, they want their vote to be about, to say, I care about environmental issues, for example, or whatever it is. They don't just kind of go, I want someone who's not the Tories. That's not how people make their decisions. Anyway, let's talk policy, because you know how we love policy on this podcast. What about that old tuition fee pledge, eh, Stephen? Um, so the tuition fee pledge is a bit... I should probably Odd. explain what the tuition fee pledge is, right? And I say one's been living under a rock, which is Labour have confirmed what Jeremy Corbyn said during his first leadership election, which is that they want to scrap all tuition fees. Yeah, so the, so, so the day that we are recording is Education Day, and they started with um, you know, a commitment to reverse the kind of planned cuts, and I presume, therefore, a commitment to not rolling out the new fa- national funding formula paid for by um, reversing the... Uh, corporation tax cuts since 2010, and then eight billion pounds of infrastructure spend, which under um, the fiscal rule they don't need to find money for because they they have they 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 have the the ability to borrow for investment. So you know infrastructure, transport, buildings, yeah, basically, and anything when you spend it once, you've got it forever, or you know at least until it needs some repairs. But the they also then this afternoon when Aaron and also tuition fees. The, the interesting thing about this, and obviously, you know, they've got their Clause 5 meeting tomorrow to discuss the full manifesto. Uh, and when it comes out, uh, I will I will do the, the entertaining thing of going through and totting up how uh, progressive or regressive it is in terms of who benefits. But I haven't closed my mind to the argument that particularly the 9K fee does make people act as if they are buying buying a qualification, not receiving an education, Right. So th- there is definitely an argument to be made that the graduate contribution is too large now. And certainly in terms of marginal tax rates, you are sort of bumping up against the level where... Because at the moment, um, a graduate on 25K was paying more in terms of their overall tax. You know, when you throw in national insurance, et cetera, et cetera, they were paying more than a graduate on 9K is now. Um, so... You know, there is an argument to be made about how you fund that, but it obviously is quite regressive. Um, and my instinct is, is actually, if you want to... The National Education Service, which I think is a lovely idea, although I'm still not entirely sure what it is Labour wants, like in terms of the levers they all they all pull, I'm not quite sure if it gets to where they want to be. Then actually, I think the interesting thing is, is you really should be looking forward to extending people's ability to take time out of work um, and to go through education multiple times at life without taking on loan from banks that they have to pay off regardless of their ability to pay. Yeah, it does um, seem a bit... Uh, now we have a, a workplace that's structured like it is and most people don't expect to work in the same job for the entirety of their lives. It is slightly... I mean, you can get career development loans from banks, right, that you have a certain amount of time to... You don't pay them off while you're still studying, but you then are still being charged, you know, an, a commercial rate of interest. But one of the... I mean, obviously, like, Labour never has, never fights a fair fight in a general election, right? But one of the the slightly bizarro things about this election in particular is Labour p- is putting forward quite detailed proposals, which means then it's very easy to go, and obviously I used to go, I like that bit, I like that bit, I like this vision, that bit I don't like, and that bit I can take or leave. Whereas the Tory manifesto is basically... Grammar schools, Brexit, and strong, and strong stable ta- Theresa May. I mean, you know, yeah, but it is sort of the most content-free... Oh, and fox hunting. And fox hunting, yeah. The most content-free um, programme. 
Children should be allowed to go to selective schools where they can rip foxes apart with their bare hands. That's the true vision of uh, Well, actually, technically, I think you might be able to rip a fox apart with your bare hands. I believe that any if you kill any animal uh, with a, a, a spinal column inhumanely, that is a technically a prosecutable event because you're not even supposed to kill mice with those glue traps where it breaks their spine. Fact. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we, I once lived in a house with a terrible mouse problem and actually in the end we had to get someone to come around who feeds them a poison that also, um, like it's like got formaldehyde in it, so it also mummifies them. So the trouble with that is great because it kills the mice, but also you do find tiny, quite adorable looking, but very stiff mice staring at you from bits of like from a countertop for weeks afterwards so this is increasingly why i kind of regard not living in flats as innately uncivilized obviously i grew up in a flat i i live in a flat i actually live yeah they, they are you know kind of late late 50s early 60s council build so they are basically identical in terms of their their shape and size and layout and obviously the the big thing they all have in common which kind of confused me when when he was like i choose when i take the bins out it's like oh yeah people who don't live in flats don't have a magical chute and you like put your waste in and then it's the council's Is this problem philip may? yeah philip may in his one show interview was like oh you know when i put the bins out and it's just like oh yeah people who live on the bare earth I'm just like, ugh. London just gives you a very weird view of the concept of bins. Um, because where I used to live in glorious Islington, in uh, Emily Thornbury's fiefdom, you actually, there were no wheelie bins because you, you, it was a flat that went directly, like a series of flats that went on to payment. And they picked up your bins every day. But also, it, it means like animals can get inside. I mean, yeah, because we're, you know, fairly high up, you, you, we'd have to work quite hard to get some form of infestation right uh i think you might one day live to eat those words because if there's one thing i can tell you about mice it's that little buggers can get anywhere anyway enough about my rodent problems now i have wheelie bins so i'm you know like i, I watch mrs brown's boys that chat show i have a wheelie bin i'm incredibly in touch with is that why you're becoming a tory i'm not becoming a tory <laughs> anyway um but yeah on the subject of the actual tories um so yeah, they It's fine. This isn't like people if you said that to me on Twitter then I'd be drowning in people calling me a slug for the next couple of weeks, but it's you know, people on turns out actually people who listen to our podcast are able to comprehend whole sentences rather than just angrily mashing the keyboard. Um yeah, but uh Can we talk about the labor leadership? Um yes, uh so obviously the slightly um bizarre thing about this election is that you talk to most people from most parts of the Labour Party, and they'll kind of go like, you know, on the record, here's what I'm, yeah, here's our, here's our plan to like win this seat, win this election, and then afterwards they're like, but anyway, on to business. Let's talk about the big fight we're planning to have on the morning of the 9th June for control of the wreckage of the Labour Party. Um, and that conversation got a bit of a boost this week because um, Jim Waterson at BuzzFeed did an interview with Jeremy Corbyn in which he said, no, if I lose, I'm sticking around. He said, I was elected leader and I'll carry on being leader or something yeah. like that. It was definitely a formulation that was, I mean, in that circumstance, you'd normally expect somebody to say, I'm all about winning or I don't deal in hypotheticals. I think those are the kind of two classic because that happened after the, and people would ask um, Salmon the same during the Scottish referendum, right? If you lose, will you step down as leader of the SNP? And he went, you know, I don't talk in hypotheticals. And, yes, and, I, yes, I will. and Brown and Miliband did both kind of do sort of, I won't, I, I won't, stand I won't, up. I'm I stand down, on, yeah. I'm carrying on, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, you know, Ed did sort of kind of, well, it is contested, um, but it's fairly certain that Ed, 
did they were operating in the leader's office under the idea that if they got 250 to 270 seats ed would stick around for a another go in five years time so but this also has an overtone to it doesn't it which is that there is an, an increasing feeling that actually jeremy corbyn's leader ratings are so bad that he is in some ways a drag on the labor vote and that i mean like i said somebody said to me you know i want to vote labor but unless they lose really badly he won't go and i think that's a factor in this leadership election and actually in terms of where corbyn has been campaigning he was in my uh, my hood of Worcester this week um, in front of the Guildhall, which has got a Tory majority of over 5,000 now. And actually there is a thing that people in marginal seats, A, don't want to take time out from campaigning to do a photo call that will get a nib in the local paper and C, some people just don't feel that he is a drag on them and they don't want to to be seen with him in their seat. So I think he's finding it in some respects quite hard to find people who, want to, who are genuinely happy to see him. Um, yeah, but I mean... Yeah, obviously he he's he's naturally warm on the campaign trail. He enjoys campaigning, so I think he's enjoying the kind of like on the ground stuff. Yeah, obviously the the Times had uh, you know a, a sort of hit on 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 the fact that even his loyalists mostly aren't putting him on on their leaflets. But the the reason why this is all more intense because obviously Miliband and, and Brown were drags on the ticket in mm. twenty ten and twenty fifteen. The reason why it's more intense is that. Brown's legitimacy solely flowed through the parliamentary party. They were the only people who got to elect him ever, right? So his legitimacy flowed through them and therefore flowed through the the general election. Ed came in through a fix in Labour's electoral college, basically. But but again, his legitimacy he saw as flowing through Parliament. There's actually quite a sophisticated argument underlying the row between Corbynites and Corbyn sceptics, which is like, from where does Jeremy's legitimacy come from? Does it exist solely within the structures of the party? Is there a, a kind of composite of does it come from the country and the party? Uh, or, or, or should it solely emanate through the, the structures of parliamentary democracy and the rights of nomination and control of, of Labour MPs? And the reason why people are more nervous about Jeremy going, yeah, I'll stay, is because his critics sort of think that he is very firmly in the my legitimacy flows through uh, the party. Although, actually, when you talk to most Labour MPs, um, particularly, I would say, most Labour MPs who are active in their own constituencies, you know, like live there or, or are from there, you have a kind of... A, they are not relaxed about the prospects of, of a leadership race. They think it will be difficult. They, you know, they're not sure if, if, if there are, are existing people who, who might join to vote for Jeremy Corbyn who have not already joined. But they actually kind of feel like, look, Labour members did not enjoy like the options put before them. Owen Smith ran a bad campaign, but actually people are worried about the election. And if we lose and lose badly, most people will not climb back aboard the Corbyn train. Which I'm I think- firmly on team hashtag he should stay until the autumn if if he loses because I think there's um, a couple of things. I think probably you just need it. You know that Emmeland immediate resignation was actually kind of it just threw another weight of instability into the mix at the time when the party already didn't need it. I think people need a bit of time to mourn if there is an election defeat, and I also think that if. You know, if if they do have the McDonald Amendment, which gets through, which I I already think is pretty questionable in the circumstances, then a, a very bad sign for the next Labour leader is if they cannot beat everyone else. You know, if, if somebody from the centre can't beat a candidate from the hard left, whatever you want to call it, that's not a great sign about their campaigning abilities, right? As evidenced last time round. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I, I, yeah, I think, as you say, the chances of the McDonnell Amendment making it uh, through the conference floor look remote um, to me. The thing we kind of do sort of forget a lot um, whenever we talk about the, the Labour Party, and not just us, but basically every commentator on Labour, sort of from, you know, kind of from the sort of right-wingiest of, of Blairites all the way to your kind of sort of like hammer and sickle wavers, is there is this quite important thing in the Labour movement called the trade unions. If he can get an increase in the Labour vote or hold on to the what Ed did and outperform the polls, say get 180, 200-something seats, then possibly he can stay. But actually... One, I don't think the membership is going to go again, again. I definitely don't think the general secretaries are going to go again, again. And the difficulty for the left is they're already failing to get their stuff through the structures of the party as it is. Mm. If he loses, um, the NEC will become more hostile, partly because there is going to be some rebalancing on the NEC, because at the moment, Unite who are generally pro-Corbyn, have got an outsized representation because as the trade unions have merged, that has increased their dominance. So that will change the balance there. The big variable in this, though, of course, is is, is who he, he faces. My read from going around, um, going around the country and talking to local members and you know, doing events and, and that kind of thing is that if you kind of just had, like, candidate A and I knew nothing about them, I'd go, that candidate will, will beat Jeremy Corbyn if, if he loses and there is a, a leadership election. However, seeing as we know that there is not candidate A, the candidate, the overwhelmingly likely candidate is Yvette Cooper. I mean, Yvette's already run against him and lost. And I imagine will run a campaign on the idea that Labour lost because it didn't have enough mugs with control on immigration on them. And then it's tricky to see, it. you know, she could win. Um, not least because we shouldn't forget that a lot of people did pay 25 quid to vote for someone not called Corbyn. Yeah, considering how few people know who Owen Smith or Angela Eagle are, in terms of your ability to recruit more people to the Labour leadership election, there's a strong case to be made that we are at or near peak Corbyn. We are definitely not at or near peak Corbyn sceptic. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting context. Obviously, they've kind of tried to dampen down the is he staying, is he going sort of uh, row. In my other instinct is the weird thing with the, the Labour leadership election they are all preparing for, but none of them want to talk about, is the, the side that talks about it most and triggers the most conversations about who leads the Labour Party is hurting themselves in the Labour leadership race. And of course, the other variable in terms of when he stands down is it's possible that Tom Watson won't come back. Well, he has got a majority of, what, 9,000 and then a UKIP vote of 7,000. I mean, that's very roughly, but, you know, there is a... He wouldn't need a... You know, it's not impossible that the UKIP vote in Bromwich could collapse and then also he could have some Labour Tories, which has given the kind of swings we've seen, right? Basically, every Labour MP you talk to, you talk to basically goes, oh, I think I'll be fine, but... And then they'll name some of their mates. You know, they're in trouble. And you're like... You've just named someone with exactly the same demographics and majority as you. So we kind of don't really know what the Labour Party will look like. Um, we don't know who the surviving candidates will be. And it could be that the polls are, are wrong in a different direction. The, the increase in Labour's vote share could continue. There are just so many weird variables. But at the moment... Well, there's also seat-by-seat seat variables, right? There also, we just do not at the moment know what effect, you know, a Lib Dem lack of revival would have in some seats. Yeah, but at the moment, my working assumption is that 
there will be a leadership election and it will be, be contested between Jeremy Corbyn and Yvette Cooper. And then... <laughs> oh, no, Stephen, no, I can't, please. I might have to, I don't know, I might have to retire to a nunnery or something. I can't cover a third Jer- Jeremy Corbyn-based leadership election. Oh, it's just, I mean, so I did a show this week with Aisha Hazariku, who's a former Labour special advisor, and it was really noticeable in it that um, there weren't that many Corbyn-friendly people in the room, which, you know, is not unreasonable because Aisha comes very much from the centre-left, you know, worked for Harriet Harman. But I I just, I feel like now the people who, the, the, the tide is slightly going out on the Corbyn movement to some extent. And actually a lot of the people who would see themselves as kind of lifelong Labour members who were also very fond of Corbyn, I feel like that that segment has been has been quietening down quite significantly so i feel like now a lot of the encounters that i have with people who are corbyn supporters are people who probably were like anarchists five years ago who are a lot more unpleasant um and i just i don't know if that's purely a sort of social media facebook twitter artifact but i do feel that actually the composition of the corbyn still corbyn vote it it has changed a bit in the last year well i think i I would partially agree with that i think yeah, the kind of important thing about Labour members is, you know, like the clue is in the title. When when bad stuff happens, the kind of the family and the collective bunkers down and solidifies behind the leader. And I would say most Labour activists are firmly in that place, including people who, who didn't vote for him. However, I mean, I think we shouldn't forget that even in 2016, a majority of Labour members didn't think that he was competent and didn't think he could win. They weren't, however, convinced by what was on offer and they were very angry about the skullduggery around the attempt to yeah. uh, remove him without a contest. Well that is the big lesson isn't it is it's not enough to try and convince people that Corbyn isn't right to be leader you do have to sort of have to convince people that you are right to be leader. Yeah and in some ways it, there is an exact parallel with the state of the country and to be honest in terms of the average person on Labour's centre-left I think they have the same problem in their diagnosis of both, which is that it's not enough to have a plausible diagnosis of why the Conservative approach has failed or why Corbynism is not going to lead to a Labour majority. Unless unless once you've pointed that out, you have an incredibly compelling counteroffer, you're just a moaner and no one likes moaners. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, let's talk about your column this week because it's something that we've discussed a few times before but I think it is really interesting what's happening in this election so um, I think we might have mentioned that Theresa May might as well be kind of uh, campaigning in a hermetically sealed I would say palanquin but I don't know if that's actually how that word's pronounced because I've only read it in E&M Banks novels so it's possible that it has a much jazzier pronunciation than that What's that? It's like um, there's in the culture novels. They, I think they carry. No, I mean I'm getting confused with Alistair Reynolds' novels. My hard sci-fi. I'm getting mixed up. Um, like a locked, like a like a litter, like a locked litter, right? Like a box. No, no, but like you know the way that kind of senators and stuff would have been carried around on poles on people's shoulders, but in a box. Yep. Yeah. You know, like a like a sedan chair, but yeah. an upgraded version of that. You were you stu- didn't you study history? Yeah, How but do you not know about sedan chairs? That's like a ninety percent of history. Yeah, but I only really kind of did sort of one kind of medieval paper. I mainly did sort of like, you know, 
French Revolution, Luther, you know, the interesting stuff. You know, I don't, I, I basically, if they haven't invented the printing press, but everyone's not dead, right? You kind of want that, like, that sweet spot between 1500 and, like, 1830 and everything else. Okay, but I'm pretty sure that people would have had a palanquin in them. That bit, but, but anyway, she's cam- she's campaigning in a, a, uh, in in a, a sealed in a, box. In a kind of, yeah, hermetically sealed box. And, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, to his credit, has been out actually, you know, uh, having kind of mini rallyettes and stuff like that. Um, Tim Farron did get shouted at by a very angry man uh, in the street and went on a hovercraft as well, which looked quite fun. So at least he's enjoying himself. Um, but, you know, people have said this is, a, you know, a, a sort of non-election campaign and your column made a kind of counter-argument to that. Well, yeah, so the kind of the fascinating question, which I don't sort of answer one way or the other in the column because I don't know, is that the Conservatives have gradually been refining the voter out of their election campaigns since about... 2005 really like they have just found more and more ways of not putting the candidate in front of any real voters and you just focus on your actual audience which is on tv radio and facebook right and you kind of do a bit of stuff for the local papers but the main thing you do is you just buy advertising in them because they need the money yeah they're mostly so broke and they just really can't turn it down um and so the weird thing is so are they fighting the election campaign yes but it isn't even really an election campaign than you would than someone yeah you know, if you put an election strategist asleep in two thousand and one, and you know were like now you run this they'd go oh this this is a bit weird isn't it you know, so we forget in two thousand maybe really freaked out by Facebook yeah. what everyone's posting photos of their babies on the internet um and yeah we forget that in two thousand and one sort of okay obviously Labour won by loads but they did have you know awkward encounters with real non non vetted voters now obviously. Jeremy is doing something very different. He's going out and meeting people and not just sort of a kind of you know, chosen activist. So he, you know, he 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 met people at the national um head teachers union. Now, I know that a certain type of our listener uh will go, Oh, but you know, a union I mean, yeah, again, I know I said sort of Yeah, but they can be quite feisty teachers. I mean And also unions aren't innately left wing and head teachers unions even more even more yeah. so, right? A majority of head teachers uh voted for the Conservatives last time around. But the, the kind of fascinating thing is, is I can't work out, is Jeremy Corbyn meeting actual voters and focusing on this kind of bespoke, more bespoke approach to campaigning? Is it going to look as antiquated, antiquated as, um, you know, like Winston Churchill kicking off his campaign at Walthamstow Dogs Track with a, a big crowd or kind of at Lee in 1955 being like, television? What is campaigning on the television? You know, um, I think it's enormously inefficient, right? I mean, that's the thing about about meeting real people is that you can only meet real people in you know in the hundreds at a time, whereas you can bulk buy advertising um, online for hundreds of thousands, and television, you know, being on BBC One, you can reach millions. So I watched Theresa May and Philip May on the One Show, and I, I, we've got a piece by Roger Mosey who used to work at the BBC going out tonight, in, uh, in which he is really questions the BBC's decision to do this because he says you know politicians are always desperate to use bits of the BBC that aren't the political programming right because they know that's where the normal people are so people were always I think Tony Blair really wanted to get on match of the day he said and they had to try and block that David Cameron eventually snuck onto the Chris Evans breakfast show to talk about the Olympics um, because he had a personal contact with somebody who worked on the show but the, the BBC has generally been historically pretty opposed to cosy sofa chats because that is just seen as another form of advert and that's really what Theresa May's one show appearance was it was an advert for the concept that Theresa 
May is a human being with human emotions. So they talked her through her wedding photos. They did, you know, Philip May, did you fancy her when you first saw her? Theresa May, tell us a relatable anecdote about shoes, which is your thing you have that's a sign of you having a personality. And, you know, totally policy-free. It was just a lifestyle interview. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is going to get the same thing, although um, Laura is not going to be on there with him. But it was it was quite... St- I, mean, I, can, I mean, if I was CCHQ, I'd be delighted with it. But it was a, quite a strange thing to have happened. So, this is going to be one of those long rambling things because I, I have two sharply con- contrasting opinions and I can't reconcile. So my instinct is that People are, people are, and you can you can shout about till you're blue in the face. And in terms of the other thing which has happened this week, which is election expenses, right? People vote for a prime minister. They 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 vote for the party they want to run the country. A couple of people, but they are mostly not significant, even in their own constituency, let alone nationwide, vote for a local candidate. But most people don't, and they are kind of buying the idea of the person in the round. And people do kind of care about how it is these people are when they're not just, you know, instructing the MOD. So I'm kind of for it because it's such a key part of how people make decisions Then I kind of think you should kind of give people more opportunities to do it. Okay, here's something I'm only going to say in the safe space of the podcast as well. I think Philip May might be my problematic fave. Why? Because he just seemed, and I know this is, he just seemed really chilled out with the concept of being a man who's married to the Prime Minister. And you know how, like, there's a whole thing about, oh, Dennis, Dennis Thatcher was so strong and supportive, but it was also seen as being, like, how terrible for Dennis that, you know, he should be so emasculated in this role, he's going to have to, you know, send anguish letters to Bill Deeds. Philip May is just a man going his own way. You know, he's just doing his own thing, he's fine, he's, you know, chilling out, he's got his own stuff on, he puts the bins out, whatever. Um... I I I I liked that. I, there's not very many nice things I have to say about uh, you know the whole Theresa May image, but that is kind of one of them. Yeah. So I mean, like he he obviously is like a a good uh, political spouse, um, partly because so the, yeah, like so the fascinating um, thing that sort of everyone will tell you about focus groups is you you focus group Yvette Cooper or Red Balls. And people sort of are sort of all right with them. And then you kind of go, by the way, do you know one of them is married to the other? And people are like, I don't like that. Because people don't like MPs and they don't think that it is, um, you know, they, they think it's That's a That's bit- really funny. Someone I was talking to, a Labour politician, said, um, you know, it's really interesting. When you go around on your own as an MP, and this person wasn't an MP anymore, when you go around on your own as an MP, um, people are really cool with you. But as soon as you get joined by another MP, then you're politicians, right? And that's when you start getting kind of heckled and people think that you're not like this representative of this hated political class. And it's this sort of strange thing where you're more than the sum of your parts if you just put one MP and put another MP together. Yeah, and so, you know, he also started with political ambitions and he, he had... Yeah, they are a stronger political unit because their joint ambitions funnel through her than they, I mean, ditto the Clintons, right? Yeah, like, yeah, people people don't like it and they're kind of a bit uneasy about it. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think it's, a, I can understand why Lara doesn't want to do it, but I think it is a shame because I think that, I think Jeremy will do very well in all of the kind of, you know, oh, he'll Desert be Island discs. Great at the about, one show because like, he'll talk about they'll like bring on a marrow. He'll talk about his allotment. You know, he'll make some jokes about El Gato. You know, they'll say, "Do you find it difficult to deal with all the negative press attention?" And he'll go, "Well, it is a bit tricky, but you know, it's a great privilege." Which is kind of what Philip May did. You know, it's. I, I think it'd be fine. I think the interesting thing, as well in the election campaign, is Downing Street have agreed to do a question and answer session on Question Time, 
with ordinary members of the people. Ordinary members of the people? Yeah. That's, no, that's very pop. Theresa May. You know, there's the will of the people. Um, she'll have to hear from them. But she hasn't done question time since 2011. Um, she doesn't react to uh, difficult questions in a way that I would say was polite. Yeah, I think some poor kind of like Bob from Chippenham is about to kind of get sent away with a flea in his ear. I mean, yeah. he asked a difficult question and about again, something she doesn't like. You can argue about whether or not this is the correct way to view politics, but most people do kind of think that they're the customers and the politicians are the thing they're buying, and you've got to be polite to the customers. And Jeremy does have a flash of temper with journalists, but with random members of the public, he's quite patient and folksy. So I wouldn't be... And, and my strong prior is basically, if people don't like your leader... They have one opportunity to fix that, which is the TV debates, which is when people start paying attention and they kind of give you a, like a second look. Um, if, if if I was miles ahead, why would you agree to a debate? I think you should. My problem is, like, but with Jeremy Corbyn, is I think someone might be mean to him and he might be a bit woolly in response, which I find kind of quite sweet and adorable. But there is a difficult line that people also want a leader to be strong. So I think they don't. They certainly don't want someone they feel is kind of rolled over on that. Yeah, I mean. I, I can see how both of them would 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 come a cropper at certain bits, but I just think Jeremy's serenity will see him through. Probably, Monsieur Zen, as we found out that his nickname is this week. Yeah, Monsieur Zen is fine. Well, uh, if you're listening, Jeremy Corbyn, um, give our love to El Gato and indeed to your giant marrow. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yes, see, you're getting into the spirit at last. I knew I would wear you down. Um, I have learned to love Big Brother. (laughs) It's from Michael Gorman, who emailed in to say, is it time to retire the word tribal applied to a political party? He thinks it's used mostly of Labour supporters in order basically to try and bully them into saying that you shouldn't instinctively feel affinity with Labour as a political party. You should make your decisions in a quote-unquote rational way. What do you think? So I, I agree very strongly with this um, because, so, I mean, obviously he has now stood down, but throughout like the kind of Stoke um, on trend by-election, there was a lot of coverage where it was like, oh, people down there would vote for a chip if it vote, voted Labour. It's just like, I mean, Stoke's council is run by Conservatives and Independents, so proof by convincing counterexample. Um, and just kind of this nonsense about like, oh, round there, like, yeah, or, or for example, the fact that the Tees Valley was a, a big shock to everyone. But actually, the Tees Valley was only a percentage point more Labour than the West Midlands uh, mayoral race was, right? Like, okay, the Tories had taken the West Midlands more seriously, they'd spent more money and they had a better candidate, but only the fact that it's like, oh, Middlesbrough, they don't have any Tories there, and it's like, well, first past the post is a hell of a drug. Um, But yeah, if you look at George Osborne, right, a man who, let's face it, you could not claim was doing his job as a constituency MP, right? He that was, is, I mean, I think you should take that back. I know, mean, I think he's been past Tatton maybe three or four times on his way to somewhere else while he was MP for there. But, you know, between, you know, BlackRock, you know, his his full-time job as Evening Standard editor, his speeches, his... I think he got some American McCain job as well. Fella. I mean, like, the the idea that he was in any way representing the people of Tatton... They had a lot of strong thoughts about their roofing situations. Um, ...is a joke. But if he'd still been the candidate, he would have won, right? The people of Tatton voted... Like, 18,000 of them voted for Neil Hamilton in 1997. No one ever goes like, lol, lol they'd, they would vote for a dog with a blue rosette round here. And yet, it is palpably equally true 
of... I feel like know, a dog with a blue rosette would have been a measurably better and cuter MP than Neil Hamilton. Uh, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget the Conservatives got 30% of the vote in 1997. So, yeah, I, I, am, I, I, I do feel that there are a lot of kind of assumptions, and particularly when you get out the way, to the way people talk about specific groups of, of Labour voters, it, it, it's freighted with kind of classism and, and the kind of, you know, slightly racist language about, you know, like them getting out the Asian vote, etc., etc., all of which I think is a bit ugly. I also think that the Tories are capable at parliamentary level of acting incredibly tribally. The classic example is maybe recently being Chris Grayling, like we can't hand over Southern to be operated by TfL, even though that would integrate it much better with London's rail network, even though TfL are patently capable of running a railway line in a way that the Southern franchise holders aren't because, uh uh-oh, because that's, we think that Boris Johnson's going to lose the mayoralty and that means Labour will be in charge of it and we don't like that. Yeah, I think the one thing it is useful about is explaining the ways and reasons why Labour, because I I don't think there's that much of a difference between voters. I do, however, think there is a massive difference between activists because I don't think that's really tribalism. That's just like you know, like crude and aggressive partisanship, right? Which I think is quite different. Whereas Labour MPs and and Labour Party members do have an affection for Labour as an entity that I don't think Liberal Democrat and Conservative MPs and members have for their respective parties. Ooh, controversial. Um, And I think that they're, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I suspect all things being equal, whatever happens after the 8th of June... Labour will survive in one piece, um, albeit a small and fractious one. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. We're produced by India Book and mixed by James Shields. Our music is by the Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. If you'd like to see even more of Helen, she's chairing the American Carnage, asking whether or not Donald Trump really will destroy the world or just a small part of it. She's doing that on Monday the 22nd of May. You can find out more details and book tickets at www.newstatesman.com forward slash events. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.